0: That chat is brought to you by Walters this weekend at Walters. Bottomless brunch begins at 11 a.m. on both Saturday and Sunday. Enjoy bottomless mimosas, Bloody Mary's, Truly and Bud Light for only $20 with your purchase of a brunch entree. Be it beer, burgers, bourbon or baseball, we encourage you to walk on over to Walters.
1: With plenty of room indoors or outside on the covered patio, contact Brett at WaltersDC.com to reserve your space today.
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: We win one tomorrow. That's called a winning streak. It has happened before. So let's see some hustle. Let's jack it up a little. I got a feeling things are about to turn around for us. The kick and the pitch from Anderson. Swing a line drive down the right field side. It's going to be in there. It'll go past Garcia and roll to the wall. Escobar scores. kiboom rounding third, trying to score. The throw toward the plate, and kiboom dives in with a first slide. He is safe, and over to third with a two-run triple is Lane Thomas. So a big hit for the Nationals' left fielder. Thomas with his second and third RBIs. The Nationals on the board first lead it two to nothing Corbin sets checks the runner three balls two strikes the pitch swing and a miss
4: Patrick Corbin with his seventh strikeout of the game no balls one strike on Avisa Garcia two out, a runner at second bottom of the ninth the Nationals leading four to one and Finnegan sets. Right hand to ready, the pinch. Swing and a high fly ball, center field. Robles back, out of the warning track, has a play.
0: He makes the catch, and a
4: curly W's in the books in Milwaukee.
0: And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, August 21st, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. I do believe we have ourselves a winning streak, a real winning streak, not a two-game winning streak, but a three-game winning streak. Three-game winning streak, that means you've crossed over into the realm of legitimate winning streaks or something like that. We make up the rules as we go along here, but a good-looking win for the Nationals on Friday night. Game one of not just a three-game series at the National League Central leading Milwaukee Brewers, but game one of a nine-game road trip, and the Nats win their third straight with all three wins over contenders. You have the two-game sweep of the Toronto Blue Jays on Tuesday and Wednesday, and you get this 4-1 win at the Brewers on Friday night. Mark, it is nice to be able to say nice things about this Nationals team, at least right now.
1: It is, Al. And again, like we keep saying, it's not just about the what, but the who. And what I really like about these three games is the who is doing it and who they're doing it against. Like you said, two contending teams, three wins in a row against them. They're getting contributions from young guys, from the newcomers, which is great. And they're also getting, at least on this night, contributions from one of the old timers, one of the few remaining ones, who is still really important. And that's Patrick Corbin. And for all the games this year that we've had to talk about how bad he looked and what does this mean for him in his future, how refreshing to actually see him look like 2019 Patrick Corbin in this game. He was fantastic. And to me, that's like as encouraging as seeing the young guys have a good game and come through for them to see Patrick Corbin against a good Brewers lineup look like that. It does show you that there is still something there. It's just a matter of harnessing it and figuring out how to do that consistently now.
0: Yeah, and I do think that that's the A topic from this game. For those familiar with the cult classic Office Space, one of the many great lines in that movie having to do with one of the great characters, Milton, was, We fixed the glitch.
3: (laughs) We fixed the glitch. So he won't be receiving a paycheck anymore, so it'll just work itself out naturally. Mm -hmm. We always like to avoid confrontation
5: whenever
0: possible. I don't know if the Nats fixed the glitch with Patrick Corbin, but certainly steps were taken in a positive direction. Davey Martinez wanted Corbin to throw more fastballs. Patrick Corbin on Friday night threw more fastballs, and the results are really good. One run in six into third inning, seven strikeouts versus no walks. He allowed just three hits, solo homer, a double and a single, 61 strikes versus 31 balls. On uh, 92 pitches. I mean, he needed this outing in the worst way. We had talked about all of the struggles. And if you really look back at his game log for the year, this really was Corbin's first good start in two months because the last time he had a good final line, that was not a particularly good start, that 15-5 win at San Diego on July 7th. That was that game in which the Nats take Corbin out to these massive leads, and he only went for six innings, and he threw a lot of pitches, 106 pitches over the six innings. I mean, to me, you got to go back to a 5-2 win over the Mets at Nationals Park, June 20th, two runs in six innings in that game. For the last time, Corbin had truly had a good outing. Well, we go from June 20th to August 20th, but old Corby, he looked really good on Friday night.
1: Yeah, I agree. And let's just hope that, unlike Milton, that maybe this really good start for him will keep him from wanting to uh, burn Nationals Park to the ground.
0: <laughs> yeah. Where's Corbin Stapler? That's yeah, what I slick
1: away have. with the red stapler. This was really good, like you said. And he'd had some starts where he looked good at times, but always have that one inning where it all fell apart on him. And this time he looked good in the fifth. He looked good in the sixth. They let him come back out for the seventh. And I know You know, it didn't quite end as as much on a high note as you'd like. But there was a long at-bat there against Eduardo Escobar, 11 pitches. There was almost a home run down the line. It hooked foul, and then he got him to fly out. So he got that out, and then he did give up the home run to uh, Garcia after that. And, And Davey said, you know what? That's fine. 91 pitches. Let's not push this any farther. That's fine. So he did avoid the, you know, disastrous last inning. He finished fairly strong, did not walk a batter in the game. And the thing that stuck out to me the most, and this was the glitch that they fixed, and Davey talked about this last time and talked about it going into this start, he wanted him to trust his fastball more. And That's exactly what he did. He threw his fastball 71% of the time in this game. This is Patrick Corbin, who we all know is the slider guy. Well, finally, he trusted the fastball to get out, and he was throwing it 95, 96. It was as good as we've seen it all year long, and it showed him and it showed everyone that he can be successful in a different way. It doesn't always have to be go to the slider to end at bats. You can get out with fastballs. That was, I think, an important tweak that he made, and it shows you that there is another way for him to be successful.
0: Yeah, I mean, if the fix is that simple, boy, what have we been doing here throughout this season? You tend to think it's probably not that simple. I mean, he obviously commanded the fastball very well in this game. And the other thing too is Corbin has had good outings this season. Like we've had a handful of games in which he has looked like 2019 Corbin. So what I said about fixing the glitch, I'm being facetious. Like we got to see a lot more before we can declare that, but it's really good to see that this is still there. And it's not as simple as Patrick Corbin is a train wreck and he's doing nothing well this season. It's like, no, He looks good at times and he looks good in starts. And it was funny to me uh, reading your tweets during the game because I I, I could tell when you were tweeting like about his early inning success, you were kind of framing it that way because you didn't know if it was going to fall apart. None of us knew if this was going to fall apart. Like we all were kind of waiting for the bottom to fall out, maybe in the fourth, maybe in the fifth, maybe in the sixth. And it never happened. And it was so great to see that. So Patrick Corbin coming into this game here on Friday night for Baseball Info Solutions, had only thrown his fastball 55.8% of the time this season. So you said 71%. That is a major leap forward. And you know what? If the fix is that simple, that's awesome. Because that's a pretty simple thing to keep doing moving forward. And I think too, you know, we, we mentioned this the last time Josiah Gray pitched of maybe there is an element sometimes with Davy of pitchers of hey, Let the guy end his outing on a high note. I'm sure Davey probably looked at Corbin after giving up that home to Garcia and said, all right, let's cut this off before anything disastrous potentially happens. Maybe nothing terrible would have happened, but let's just get out while they're getting still pretty good.
1: Yeah, I agree. And like I said, that 11 pitch at bat to start the inning, I think kind of put him behind the eight ball already. He was already up now over 90. That took a lot out of him. So the first sign of trouble there in the home run, okay, let's call it a night. He can't take the loss now. Can't let the tying run come up to face him, anything like that. You know, I thought it was good to send him back out for the seventh. You know, he he hit in the in the top of the inning, and you could have pinch hit for him and pulled him at six innings, but it was only 80 pitches. And at that point, it's three base runners that he had. No, two base runners. He had allowed no walks. I mean, you're not going to pull him at that point. you got to give him a chance to at least get through the seventh. But I like that he had Mason Thompson ready to go the first sign of trouble, and at the first sign of trouble, he made the move. But back to the fastball thing. That may be a key part of the fixing the glitch, but like you said, it only works if he commands the fastball, and he absolutely did that. He was getting ahead in the count, wasn't going to a lot of three-ball counts, obviously didn't walk anybody. So it's a combination of the approach and the pitch selection, but also the execution of those pitches. Corbin also laughed that there was one, uh, I think it was Rowdy Tellez in the fifth, scorched a ball to center field. It was right at Robles, and Corbin was able to laugh about this afterwards. He said, finally, he made a mistake on a pitch, and he got an out on it. And we've so often this year, the mistakes have always turned into home runs. He finally caught a break, and to be honest, he earned one of those.
0: Yeah, he did, and the home run has been a huge problem for him. He's been giving up way too many homers. Only gives up the one in this game. It's only a solo homer. Ask Josiah Gray about those; they don't kill you uh, if you do everything else well. And Corbin did do everything else well in this game. And to see the strikeouts, I mean, you know, that's that's the other thing, right? Like Corbin was a really good strikeout pitcher for a while, and these last two years he hasn't been. But in this game, the seven Ks. Versus the no walks, perfect bottom of the first strikes out the Brewers' first two batters, Tyrone Taylor and Willie Adamas. Perfect bottom of the fourth strikes out Adamas and uh, the Brewers' cleanup batter, Avisail Garcia. Now, Garcia got Corbin later in the game, but a lot to be happy about if you're Patrick Corbin. Now, you know, got to do this four or five more times this year, but uh, really nice to see Corbin do that. And then while we're talking Nationals pitching, I don't know if I'm going to regret saying this, but I'm going to say this. I think the bullpen is actually in a pretty good place right now and actually doing a pretty good job. And I know there's been this thing of like every game, there's one Nats reliever who struggles. So does that really make it a good bullpen? I don't know. But man, the bullpen did a really good job on Friday night and was a huge part of this win. Mason Thompson comes into the game, bottom of the seventh, faces two batters, gets two outs. He does issue a leadoff four-pitch walker Lorenzo Kane, but he's able to, uh, to get, so he doesn't face two batters, but he gets a two outs. Andres Machado. How about Andres Machado? You know, I didn't realize this, Mark. Machado had not pitched in a regular season game up until this season since 2017. Like, this is another one of these guys who's like a reclamation project, essentially. And Andres Machado comes into the game, bottom of the eighth, runner on first, nobody out, Nats are nursing this 3-1 lead, gets three outs on three pitches, including his first pitch.
4: Lefties are 3-for-23 against Machado. Swing a ground ball up the middle. Right there, Escobar has it. Steps on second, throws to first,
0: and Yellich has grounded into a double play on the first pitch thrown. So Andres Machado now has a two forty-one ERA on the year. And then Kyle Finnegan, a scoreless bottom of the ninth inning. He does issue a leadoff walk, a leadoff six-pitch walk, a Jace Peterson. But Finnegan striking out Eduardo Escobar. For the second out, getting a great backhanded stab of a low throw by uh, Josh Bell at first base for the first out of the inning. The bullpen delivered in this game.
1: The only hiccup there and the only thing that I know drives Davey nuts is those leadoff walks (laughs) and it drives everybody nuts. But they showed some resilience in overcoming those in this game. So credit to them for that. Mason Thompson, when he first came in in the seventh after the the home run that Corbin gave up, he falls behind 3-0. To Arias, and then he battled back and got him out, sawed his bat in half with a 3 2 uh, hard power sinker that bore in on his hands. So that was good. Got out of that inning. Yeah, the leadoff walk in the eighth, but then Machado, first pitch to Yelich. Hey, kid, guess what? You get to face the former MVP coming off the bench in a big spot, and right away gets the double play grounder, and then another ground ball out. Machado is, you you mentioned his story. I mean, he was kind of out there, nobody really paying attention to him. And you know how the Nats got him? On a recommendation from Anibal Sanchez, who was with him in, I think it was in West Palm Beach, the Venezuelan national team was preparing for the Olympic qualifiers. And Machado was there and Anibal was still trying to pitch, maybe make the team, Maybe get a shot at the big leagues. It didn't happen for him, but he had been in touch with the Nationals and he told them, hey, there's a kid here that you should you know, take a look at. They wind up signing him to a minor league contract, goes to AAA where he was great. They called him up and he looks like he could be a piece, you know, down the road. Davey likes him a lot. He likes the strike throwing ability, the ability to go multiple innings. That was a big time situation that he was in there. And Finnegan, you know, I I keep saying I don't really know if he's a closer or not, but he's getting the job done. And he is kind of showing a fearlessness. I mean, yeah, he may issue a walk now and again, but he's able to get out of it. He's got the good stuff, as we know, and facing the heart of their lineup with a chance for the game to fall apart there, and he did not. So good on him. It's now five out of six for him and save opportunities since he took over. You need to see this day in and day out, but there are three or four guys in this bullpen that you can say, I could see the potential there for this to turn into a, a quality group of late-inning relievers. And they're getting a lot of experience right now in big spots, on the road, against contending teams. And that's only going to help them in the long run.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately in this game, Thompson, Machado, and Finnegan combined for two and two-thirds scoreless and hitless innings. That's really good, you know, especially against a good team like the Brewers, just to clean up what I said about Mason Thompson, bottom of the seventh, faces two batters, gets two outs, and then like Mark said, Thompson issues a leadoff walk of Lorenzo Cain in the top of the eighth. Then Machado comes into the game, and Machado is good, and Finnegan ends up being good. So a very good pitching night for the Nationals to allow just the one run in this 4-1 win at the Brewers. But then they
2: switched from the swing line to the Boston stapler, but I kept my swing line stapler because it didn't bind up as much, and, and I kept the staples for the swing line stapler. <laughs> Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need
3: Indeed. The 1 2. Swinging a ground ball left side, base hit into left field. Soto trying to score from shallow left. Peterson up with the throw. On one hop to slide the tag. Safe is the call. Soto scores, just ahead of Pena's tag. Pena pointed to the dugout, asking for a challenge. Over to third on the play is Keeboom. And on the RBI single for Riley Adams, the Nationals lead 3-0.
0: Like we talked about earlier in this installment of the podcast, we saw more of the Nationals' young players deliver in this game. And, you know, not just say a Mason Thompson or a Kyle Finnegan, but the Nationals' prospects, the Nationals' young potential building blocks coming through in this game. In various ways, so you had something like, say, Riley Adams, who interestingly was the national starting catcher again on Friday night. He comes through with a big two-out RBI single in the top of the sixth for a three-nothing Nats lead. Lane Thomas was the Nats starting left fielder in this game, two for four with a two-run triple and a single. The two-run triple was a huge hit—a two-out two-run opposite-field triple to right field in the top of the fourth. Thomas also with a one-out full-count single in the top of the eighth inning. So right there, right? Riley Adams acquired in the Brad Hand trade. Lane Thomas acquired in the John Lester trade. And so far, so good. Like I know these guys weren't uber prospects, but they're doing a good job so far. Luis Garcia in this game on Friday night, leadoff double, top of the fifth, leadoff four-pitch walk in the Nationals' one-run ninth inning. So it was very good to see something like that. Carter Keyboom did draw a couple of walks, although we also had a rough night at the plate, 0 for 3, left six men on base. Victor Robles did go 0 for 4. So, you know, it wasn't a clean sweep of every young player killing it, but another game in which you had multiple young guys to point at and say, all right, these guys look pretty good here.
1: Yeah, so let's start with Riley Adams, now 10 for 30 as a national with two doubles, two homers, seven RBIs, two walks. I think we'll take that from a young catcher, would you not? And you mentioned it, this was his fourth straight start behind the plate, and I think there's a little something to that. Now, the off days have helped that he could do it. Davey did say that Trace Pereira will probably start on Saturday, but I think we are seeing here Adams showing that he is at least offensively the bigger threat than Barrera is. Barrera had a nice couple of weeks there when he first was catching a lot, even before the trade deadline. But in the last couple of weeks, I think it's Adams that has shown more and intriguing enough that they want to keep seeing more from him. We'll see Barrera still, obviously. But if we're handicapping the race right now, I think you put Adams ahead of Barrera in terms of who looks like more likely to be the uh, number two catcher next year, assuming that Caber Ruiz is the starter, so that was good. Lane Thomas getting a chance again to start against a lefty, and you're going to see more of that whenever they have the opportunities. I know all year long we keep talking about, oh, why are they always starting Para? Why are they starting Yadiel Hernandez, Andrew Stevenson? Why are all these left-handed hitting corner outfielders starting against lefties? And the answer has been because they didn't have any righties. Well, they finally have one, and they're going to put him out there and see what he can do, and he did a nice job, and he is now four for eight as a member of the Nationals. So good stuff from him. And Garcia, I'm glad you mentioned it. What stood out to me for him was that walk in the top of the ninth that started the rally for the insurance run. Here's a guy who we know is a free swinger. And especially in a spot like that where you're trying to like, you know, hey, we're trying to tack on here in the ninth. He laid off and took the four-pitch walk. And I think that's a really nice sign of maturity from him. He continues to hit lefties well, even better than righties, which is something he did at AAA as well. And the, uh, the double came off a lefty earlier in the game. So we are seeing things from him. He's still very raw. There's a lot of Highs and lows with him. You'd like to see more consistency, but he's getting the experience right now. And I I think there is enough there to say that you want to see more of him.
0: Yeah. uh, It was kind of interesting. Davey had Luis batting in the number eight spot in this game and bumped up uh, Riley Adams to the seven spot. I mean, I know we're not going all in on lineup construction these days with the state of the Nats season, but uh, that stood out to me. So that walk that Luis Garcia drew to begin with ended up being a one run Nationals ninth inning. That came off a Brewers reliever named Jake Cousins. Jake Cousins is the cousin of former Washington quarterback Kirk Cousins. And Jake Cousins was drafted by the Nationals. The Nats took him in the 20th round of the 2017 MLB draft. Jake Cousins ended up issuing three walks in that one-run Nationals' ninth inning. The Nats in this game worked eight walks. You know, we don't really think of the Nationals this season as being like a great team when it comes to drawing walks. But on this night, the Nationals did do a very good job in that regard. Uh, Juan Soto, of course, drew his walks. He went one for three with a single, two walks, uh, did strike out twice. But also drawing a big walk in this game was Josh Bell. Josh Bell goes one for three with a single and two walks. And that stands out to me because that's actually a hole in Josh Bell's game, even since he started hitting well. He doesn't draw a lot of walks. And, And some of that, I'm sure, has to do with batting behind Juan Soto. But Bell in this game, so he has a single in the Nats 2 run fourth, a leadoff full count six pitch walk in the top of the eighth, and then that two out bases loaded walk off Jake Cousins in the top of the ninth for a 4-1 Nats lead that allowed you to breathe a little easier if you're a Nats fan and you're invested in the outcomes of these games. And then, like I mentioned earlier, a terrific defensive play by Josh Bell, a great backhanded pick of a low throw by Kyle Finnegan for the first out in that bottom of the ninth inning for a uh, Willie Adamas ground out.
4: The kick, here it comes. Slider, check swing, ground ball back.
0: Third base out of the mound. Bear by Finnegan. Low throw. Dug out by Bell for the out. Wow. A good night for Josh Bell, I thought, in a variety of ways.
1: Those picks of bad throws, I think that's what stands out to me the most about him defensively this year, that we thought that was going to be a real problem for him. We knew that throwing was an issue. He has barely had to throw. He had one the other day, remember, in the ninth inning that he threw it away on, on a kind of a weird play. But he really hasn't had to make very many throws at all this year. But the job he's done to save errors from his infielders has been almost Zimmerman-like, which is astounding to me that we can talk like that. And I think it's among the reasons that he is still getting these starts against lefties. Zim is not starting much at all. It has been almost entirely Josh Bell. He's hit well from the right side of the plate. Has he been replaced once for defense this year, late in the game?
0: Hard to think of one.
1: I don't think he has. And that was something that we just assumed was going to happen regularly. Now, you know, the point you're in in this season, maybe that's not something you're going to do anyways. And maybe Davey always wants to have Zim coming off the bench as a potential pinch hitter if you never know what's going to happen late in the game. But what Bell has done defensively at first base has made a huge difference. And it's been such a pleasant surprise. I think that's really important not just for this year, but next year, assuming that he is back. And just to get back to uh, the reliever there, which Cousins would you say is better at hitting his intended target based on what we saw in this game from the pitcher?
0: Well, Kirk is accurate. The book on Kirk is he just won't always throw the ball long. So I guess you can kind of do with that what you like. But uh You know, you could say neither guy comes through in the clutch if you want to do that. Although I was a Kirk Cousins fan, so but uh, I think his detractors would say that. Neither guy can deliver when you really need him to deliver. But uh, anyway, uh, Kirk is long gone, and uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to kill it this year. But anyway, we'll uh, see about that.
1: (laughs) You were watching both games tonight, you can admit it.
0: I was, I was, and uh, both were enjoyable in uh, very different ways. So it was nice to see that. I think a stat that should be readily available but isn't Picks by first baseman. Yes. You know, uh, you'd have to work on a definition of one, but I think that that would be a valuable thing to track. Like, I don't know, maybe define it as when a first baseman catches a throw on a bounce, or you just leave it up to someone's discretion. But picks by a first baseman, that to me is telling. That says a lot about how good of a defensive player a first baseman is.
1: That is more than anything else that a first baseman does. I think that's the most important thing they do. And it's why Ryan Zerman has, in my mind, always been an elite first baseman, even if the advanced metrics don't necessarily say it. And I guess that's because, you know, they're judging more about range and certainly arm, which we know for Zim is an issue. Give me a guy who saves errors from his teammates. I would love to see that. I don't know if it's if it shows up. I don't know enough about how the advanced defensive metrics work and what the calculations are to get to it. Maybe it shows up somewhere in that. I don't know, but I'd love to see that. I agree. As a standalone stat, picks, call it picks. It can be subjective. I mean, all defensive stats are subjective to some extent. So let somebody who evaluates these things say, yeah, that counts as one. You get a plus one for that one or you get a minus one for that one. Why not?
0: Yeah, I I think it's just that's something that really matters a lot when it comes to first baseman. (laughs)
1: Hey, Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer, play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Yordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington Nationals stars today. Visit frednats.com for ticket information and follow us on social media at FXBGNats for the latest updates.
6: I want to give Fetty
1: an extra day so you know uh, we go with Pat today Espino and then Nolan on Sunday
0: all right so the Nationals pitching the rest of the weekend talk to me about this because Eric Fetty could start but isn't starting we're going Paulo Espino in game two on Saturday and Sean Nolan in game three on Sunday you would think the Sean Nolan thing is something you want to avoid until you absolutely have to start him is this a something that Eric Fetty isn't starting this weekend?
1: I don't think so. Davies sort of downplayed it and basically said, uh, you want to give Fetty an extra day. And so they're going to go ahead and have Nolan pitch on Sunday, which would line up Fetty up actually for Tuesday in Miami. Now they didn't have to do this for another week. They could have waited till next weekend against the Mets before finally using a fifth starter, thanks to these off days they have right now. But I think they figured, you know, what's going to happen eventually? And maybe there's a matchup thing with the Brewers. I'm not entirely sure. Although, you know, they didn't look great against the lefty in Corbin on Friday. So maybe they think that's a better matchup for Nolan than saving him for the Mets later. Although, he, you know, what'll be interesting is he's going to start on Sunday. But Davey stopped short of, like, declaring him now the fifth starter.
2: Is this kind of how the rotation could look now in this order with with Sean in Joe's spot and, um, and, and taking a regular turn?
0: I mean, it can, it can be. You know, we still got another day off coming up. Two more days, so. Um, we'll see, uh, how it plays out, but I want to give, uh, an opportunity to start on, uh, on Sunday and that's what we're going to go
1: with. He made it kind of open-ended as if they're going to reevaluate this each time and they have more off days. They could have opportunities to, uh, to skip people. Now I know we've heard from some fans asking about Austin Voth, who is on a minor league rehab assignment right now, went a couple innings in that one. My sense is they still only are going to look at him as a reliever that they've seen him as a starter now. They know what the issues were. He was great one time to the lineup, but after that, not so much. So I do think when we see him come back, it will be in relief and not as a starter. But I mean, they really don't have a lot of options, alternatives. There's a kid, Sterling Sharp at AAA, who they lost a year ago as a Rule 5 pick to Miami, wound up getting him back. He's got decent numbers at AAA, but nothing spectacular. He walks a lot of batters. Their other AAA starters are not young guys. We know Cade Cavalli is lurking somewhere in the future, but I don't sense that that's something that's going to happen imminently. So I don't know if there is an alternative to Sean Nolan, to be honest, unless they want to give Jeffrey Rodriguez another try. And I mean, this is where we are right now, where their rotation depth is woefully thin, and they probably don't have much choice but to be starting Sean Nolan at least a good number of times the rest of the way.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned Jeffrey Rodriguez because the Sean Nolan situation is becoming a little Jeffrey Rodriguez-like. It was on August 11th that the Nats selected a contract of Nolan from AAA Rochester and optioned Sam Clay to Rochester. Nolan has pitched one time since his contract was selected. Now, the outing did not go well, so maybe there is something to this matchup thing and they're really worried about what Nolan is going to do. Remember, Sean Nolan had not pitched in a major league regular season game since October 2015 until he made his first appearance for the Nats. That was in that 4-1-7 inning loss at the Mets in Game 1 of a doubleheader on August 12th. And Nolan in that game, four runs and three innings, gave up eight hits. So we'll see. But yeah, it's a Paolo Espino Game 2 extravaganza. And then, as best as we can tell, it is a Sean Nolan start for Sunday afternoon at the Brewers in Game 3. Uh, also, since we last did an installment of the Nats Chat podcast, MLB Pipeline has come out with its new rankings of the top 100 prospects in baseball. If you caught our chat with uh, Jim Callis, who has been a part of MLB Pipeline's great work for a while now, Callis was telling us, look, you got to kind of wait until the next installment of the top 100 comes out to really judge what you have with the Nats here, because we haven't updated it in a while. Well, that has been updated. came out late night on Wednesday night, and the Nats have four of the top 100 prospects in baseball per pipeline, just as the Nats have four of the top 100 prospects in baseball per Baseball America and the order of the four is the same as uh, was with Baseball America. So catcher Caper Ruiz, number 19 prospect in baseball. Starter Cade Cavalli, number 41 prospect in baseball. Josiah Gray, number 54 prospect. And Brady House, the shortstop slash third baseman who the Nats just took in this year's draft, the number 60 prospect. In baseball, I guess the things that stand out, and you know, these are just rankings, they're not gospel. But Cavalli is only 41 per Pipeline, whereas he was 23 per Baseball America. But Pipeline has Brady House much higher than Baseball America does. Baseball America had Brady House at number 86, Pipeline has him at number 60. But those are the core four right now in terms of Nats prospects. And I guess the other thing that stands out too is. Jackson Rutledge is not regarded as a top 100 prospect. It's not been a great year for him. And so neither MLB Pipeline nor Baseball America has Jackson Rutledge in the top 100.
1: I think it's pretty clear that those four that you mentioned are kind of in their own class in terms of the best that they have and that there is kind of a big drop off after that. Now, you know, some potential we'll see who might emerge from that group, but those seem to be the four, you know, sure things if you want to call them that or close to sure things. I think that's pretty clear at this point. Rutledge still has a lot to prove that he can stay healthy, that he can be effective. It's been a bit of a rough go for him since he was drafted, but there's still the world of potential there. And he's a young pitcher. So, I mean, it's not like he's somebody who you're going to give up on anytime soon. But yeah, I would focus on Cavalli and Gray, obviously, Ruiz, obviously, and Brady House. I mean, we heard Jim Callis talk him up a lot in our conversation with him, thought he was the best. Power hitter in the draft, loved him coming out of high school, thought that he was good enough to be one of the top six picks in the draft, and the Nats got him at 11. Now, it's an 18-year-old shortstop, so you never know how that's going to pan out, how long it's going to take, any of that. So he's got a long road ahead of him. But in terms of just pure talent, especially at that age, and physicality, I mean, it's a big shortstop. There's a lot to like there. Now it's up to him as a first-time professional to show that he can start doing it at the professional level and start working his way up the ladder.
0: You can always email us at the Nats Chat Podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Aaron Sharp wrote us an email, says, with a month and a half left in the season, guys like Adams, Thompson, and Casey are already looking like decent slash strong returns from the sell-off. Being so top-heavy with their prospects, could the Nats look towards signing some half-year flyer deals this offseason with a mindset of potentially selling them at next year's trade deadline for greater depth in their farm system. Relievers can be so volatile year to year, meaning the Nats could strike gold and position players like Soler, Villar, and Simmons come to mind. Also, with the upcoming CBA, the DH could be coming soon, potentially, altering the way that Rizzo constructs the team. Let me know what you guys think. I think that's a great idea, and a lot of rebuilding teams do do that. The Orioles, in fact, did that this past offseason, brought in, you know, Mike Franco and uh, and people like that. Actually, the Orioles last year brought in Tommy Malone, the former Nats prospect. He did so well, they were able to flip him to the Atlanta Braves. So you never know. I think that is a legitimate path to take this offseason for the Nats. Sign some guys to veterans to like one-year deals and maybe flip them come midseason next year.
1: Yeah, I think this is one of the more interesting questions. We don't know the answer yet, to of how they're going to approach the offseason. Is this going to be a, hey, we're not spending money on anybody? this winter and we're just going to play nothing but kids and if it means we lose 100 games so be it nothing at the expense of the long term or are they trying to field a little bit more competitive team with some veterans on one-year contracts and like you said the key there is that if they do well and the team is not contending as we kind of expect that they would those can now turn into more future players for you and the one that i always turn to that i think is one of mike Rizzo's absolutely best moves since he became gm that goes way back it was matt capps that he signed to be their closer in 2010. It was a bad team. They didn't need a closer, but he got him fairly cheap, maybe $4 million, something like that. He had a really good first half. He was an all-star for them. And then he found a team at the trade deadline that desperately needed a reliever, the Minnesota Twins. And they were so desperate, they gave up a young catcher by the name of Wilson Ramos. Matt caps for Wilson Ramos. That's the kind of move. I think even if Finnegan looks good down the stretch, even if Machado and Thompson, if they think they have a good young bullpen, I would 100% be on board with signing a, a fairly affordable veteran closer, somebody who's done it before with experience. I think it'll help take some pressure off the young guys, some of the workload off the young guys. And absolutely, that is somebody who has value for you at the trade deadline next year. And you know, say you get another Brad Hand type, well, you just traded for another Riley Adams maybe a year from now. So I absolutely think that's something they should look at doing.
0: Essentially, they did end up doing it with Brad Hand, not intentionally, but that's obviously how it worked out. I mean, I think there's a school of thought to where whenever a reliever is at a high point, you trade him just because these guys cannot be trusted. Like, let's say Kyle Finnegan is just dominant next season. If they really believe in him, I guess keep him. But I still would almost say like with relievers, you almost always should sell high just because they're so year to year and so few of these guys are good every year. And so when someone is just exceptional, it's like capitalize on that. And try to get something for him. But uh certainly with veteran relievers, there's no question they bring in any of those guys, trade them next offseason. I mean, you know, I think it could be interesting. Let's say Patrick Corbin does well the rest of this year and next year. Listen to how we're talking right now. Could you flip Corbin next year? You know, like that's something to wonder about. Now, you know, we're we're not we're a long ways away from that. But these are the things that you can you can entertain anyway when you're in the position that the Nats are in right now.
1: That's a lot of money that he's still gonna be owed.
0: Well, they'd have to pick up some of the money, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's, let, let, let's get through two quality starts before we start talking about that. How about that, all right?
0: Then we can do that?
1: Yeah, we can have that discussion after his next quality start.
0: Can the Nats get three top 100 prospects for Patrick Corbin? Let us know, <laughs> <Natschatpodcast> <laughs> at gmail.com. See what you think about that. Well, keep the feedback coming. Keep the voice memos coming. In fact, we have a good one for you to close out this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. Also, we'd like to ask you, if you don't already subscribe to the Nats Chat Podcast, Please do so. And if you haven't yet left your five star rating and oh so glowing review of this podcast, we would ask you to do that. It helps out the podcast a lot. It's a very simple thing, especially like if you have Apple Podcasts, you have an iPhone, it takes literally like 20 seconds. Just write, you know, I like this podcast. Or, you know, if you want to write something longer, you certainly can. But those two things, the five star ratings and the reviews, help us out a lot. So if you haven't done that, if you could just take like the 30 to 45 seconds to do that. We certainly do appreciate that very much. And we thank everyone who already has done that. And the uh, Nats chat podcast friend challenge remains. If you know of Nats fans looking for more coverage of the Nationals, better coverage of the Nationals, you know, sick and tired of uh, getting the breadcrumbs that are thrown at you if you're a Nats fan as opposed to actual, you know, good conversation. We try to give that to you here. Let people know about what we're doing here. Postgame Pods. For every Nationals game, the Nats Chat Podcast. All Nationals radio highlights are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we will leave you with this latest voice memo recounting a fan's memories of the Nationals' October 2019 run. Eric Johnson from the Dominican Republic.
6: Hey, Nats Chat Podcast. This is Eric Johnson. Big fan down here in the Dominican Republic the hometown of Luis Garcia. Love the podcast that Tim, Al, and Mark, you're doing. Listen to it every day. Thinking about 2019, what a magical run that October was, how special it was. I really wish I could have been there, but following it from afar here in the Dominican, every game was so special. Uh, A couple of things come to mind specifically, especially that first game. I don't think any Nats fan in their wildest dreams, especially kind of how uh, September was up and down, even though the Nats were finishing strong, had any inkling that we could go on that kind of run. I think everybody was just really wanting to win that wild card game and that elimination game. And so I just remember when Soto came up, and my kids already gone to bed. My wife was with me. I just was like, I really want this kid to come through in the clutch. And when he did, I jumped up and down so happy. And part of me was like, hey, that's great. That's what we got. We can build on that. And then the next series against the Dodgers, when when Howie came out with the bases loaded, and he hit that home run. To this day, my wife really thought I was going to hyperventilate and die of just sheer joy. I was literally jumping up and down and going in circles, and she she thought I was going to have a heart attack. And so, the, I, I think number one, the joy of those moments. But the other thing that was really exciting for me is I have a I had a eleven year old son now, but he was nine then, and he had to go to bed, and so every night. As the Nats would win a game, I would take a piece of paper with a red marker, and if they won, I would draw a curly W and give a little brief synopsis of the how how the Nats won, and I would tape it to his bulletin board. And then if they didn't win, he wouldn't get a piece of paper. So he kind of knew what happened And when he woke up in the morning. Well, in that game seven, he went to bed after seeing Howie's home run, but he didn't know how it played out. And so that night, I wrote a piece of paper with a W and how the Nats won, but I didn't put it on his bulletin board. I put it inside my room. So... When he woke up, I think he might have thought the Nats didn't win. They didn't pull it out. So he came into the room kind of sad and said, what happened? And I pulled out the piece of paper and showed it to him, and he jumped up and down. And so those are great memories, and I thank you for the opportunity to get to share them. Outfield
3: shades right, infield in all the way around. Turner and Seeger on the left side, Hernandez and Muncy on the right. Kelly's one-strike pitch. swinging a fly ball, center field deep. here in the 10th inning of Game 5, the Nationals 7, the Dodgers 3. Do you believe it?
5: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality.